Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, I traveled to California's Mendocino County to scuba dive with local abalone fisherman Jack Lincolns and Mike Escrow from the California Ocean Protection Council to get a first-hand look at the impact that warmer waters, less sea stars, and a massive increase in purple sea urchins are having on everything from kelp to abalone. I meet up with Mike Escrow, who's the Marine Ecosystems Program Manager at the Ocean Protection Council. Luckily for me, Mike's also a dive master, a former Sea Grant Fellow, and holds a master's degree from Cal State Monterey Bay in marine protected areas. Mike, where are we right now? We are here at Pebble Beach up on the north coast in Sonoma County, and we're going to go out and uh, try to see some abalone, but probably going to see a lot of urchins and not very much kelp, unfortunately. Okay, so in front of us we have this yellow bag, and um, it's got a lot of equipment that I can't quite remember what I'm going to do with. <laughs> so what we got right here is we have your scuba tank, so all your air is in here. We got your BCD, that stands for buoyancy compensation device, and so that's going to help you adjust your buoyancy underwater. As you get a little deeper, you're going to add some air. As you get a little shallower, you're going to vent some air out. We got your regulator here, which we're going to hook up to the tank so that you can breathe underwater. That's important. All your rubber, all your neoprene, so that's going to keep you nice and toasty in that water, which is probably about between 50 and 55 degrees right now. So you'll be glad you have that wetsuit and that, that hooded vest. And it sounds like that. you know what you're doing, which is good, because I'm glad I'm paired up with you. <laughs> I, uh, I hope I know what I'm doing. I've been a Naui instructor for, uh, for a few years now. Cool. So what do we do next? You should be putting your BCD on your tank. So I'm going to show you how you do that. Okay. This big strap goes around. Tank so how much air do we have in this tank? So this is, in a, uh, this is a steel 80, so you got 80 cubic feet of air in here. Um, depending on your air consumption, that's probably anywhere between 35, 55 minutes of air. But we'll be checking in on each other's, each other's air supply uh, as we go through the dive. Cool. So, now we'll go ahead and turn it on. You can hear it pressurize. And we'll test it. So most important thing, second stages. That's the purge valve, so if you ever get any water, you can just press that right there. Okay. You want to go ahead and take a breath, make sure it's working. Oh, I love good. that oxygen. Right. Compressed air. Nice. This is your alternate second stage right here. So if that that's just the backup. So take a breath off this one, make sure it's working. All right. <laughs> I love that first breath of pressurized air yeah. in the morning. And then this is an important piece right here. Here's your console. All the data. So this is all the data, exactly. So, so this is the PSI. most important piece of data, right? The PSI, so this is how much air you have in your tank. And then here you got a compass. Sounds like Jack's gonna be doing most of our navigation today, but if you want, you can play around with the compass a little bit and that helps you navigate underwater. We're not going down deep enough or staying down long enough to worry about any kind of decompression, but it's good to have. So that's it, that's your scuba unit. How do you feel? Good. All right. I feel like I, I know what I'm doing now. Good. So do we get change now? Yeah, I think it's going to be easiest to get change now. Okay. So, so we've got booties. Booties. They probably go on last. That's Those my guess. Those go on last. Yeah. Or well, maybe the hat goes on last. Second to yeah. last, I yeah. would say. And then here's your suit. So this is about seven or eight millimeters thick. Nice. Like Super I said, thick. that's going to keep you thick. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, you can go ahead and get that on. And, okay. Uh, once you're all suited up, I'm going to do the same and then okay. we can regroup. Perfect. Cool. Before I go and suit up, I asked Jack Lincolns, a local resident who's led the campaign to bring attention to abalone collapse and who will be leading today's dive, to explain the device he's now calibrating. Okay, so I work with ReefCheck, which is a volunteer data collecting organization in California, and I collect abalone data for them. I measure the sizes of abalone. And what I'm showing you here are some special calipers designed by Josh Rousseau, who is also a ReefCheck diver, specifically for measuring abalone so that you can do it quickly underwater. And it uses a uh, plastic paper and punches. So you punch the paper on the zero location. Then as you measure abalone, you punch. And then when you're finished, you can take the little piece of plastic paper out and measure all the sizes of the abalone. It's very fast, very efficient, and we can get up to 150 punches in one tank of air, which is about half of what you need in a site to be able to evaluate it. Super low tech. Yeah, see the little holes there? Yeah. So from that histogram of size, you can determine the size of maturity and you can determine the spawning potential ratio, which is very important in an abalone fishery. Okay, so now for the moment of truth, I have to actually get into this freezing water Okay, at this moment, I'm actually pretty nervous. Um, I remember the last time I went scuba diving, looking at the water um, 50 feet above my head and realizing that there was actually no way that I could make it up without air. And um, unlike the Caribbean, the water here is murky and freezing. Um, Okay, now I'm walking backwards from the beach into the ocean. Okay, I just was attempting to go down to the ocean floor, but it's taking me a while to sort out the the right buoyancy level for this suit. Oh God, but okay, here we go. Luckily, I had gloves on um, because we were literally crawling along the ocean floor with our hands and there were purple sea urchins as far as I could see, which admittedly was only about five feet, but they, I mean, they were everywhere. We stayed down for about 20 minutes being moved around by very strong tidal surges. And a lot of the time I felt just completely claustrophobic and directionless. Um, It took a lot of effort to keep present and not give in to fear. It also took a while for my ears to adjust to the pressure, which at first was just, the pain was just so intense and uh, just crazy. Um, It was like too painful to bear. And then like magic, it disappeared. Getting out of the water, I'm filled with just so many emotions, excitement um, to be exiting a very foreign world terror at the sea urchin infestation, gratitude for Mike for keeping me safe, and uh, a complete adrenaline high just from being on this adventure. Um, Then, unfortunately, I'm just starting to cough up some blood, which 
I find out later was normal, but at the time was just shocking. Okay, Mike, that that was more of an adventure than that was quite intense going <laughs> in the water. Thank you for being such a good guide. Yeah, you got it, man. Absolutely. That was a that was a challenging day. We had limited visibility. I'd say probably no more than five feet at any given time. So pretty green down there, and a lot of a lot of surge, a lot of water movement. So we were we were blowing back and forth pretty pretty good. But, but that was fun. It was. I just thought I was. I mean, I know I am crap, but like I'd just suddenly be floating back, and I'm like, "Where's Mike?" And so when you when we came out of the water, and you're like, "There was a lot of surge." It made me feel a teeny bit better. Oh yeah, that's definitely the surgiest I've I've experienced. But I'm not a North Coast diver. I'm a I'm a Monterey diver. So yeah, it gets it gets way more gnarly up here. So it's just, I mean, to me, as far as the eye could see, there were purple sea urchins. I mean, it was, you couldn't see that far, but as far as you could see, they were everywhere. Yeah, there there were a, a lot of them down there, and I think the craziest thing for me was just seeing how how much they'd grazed. I mean, they you know urchins are grazers; they eat plants, they eat algae, and they'd grazed everything down to bare rock. So it was it was pretty much urchins as far as the eye could see. I mean, I've never heard of them described as grazers. Yeah, that's, good. that's that's a technical term. Yeah, but they're they're herbivores. And so the sea stars used to eat them, and then they were wiped out. Yeah, exactly. So so what happened is that sea stars are one of the major urchin predators, especially a couple of big species. So sunflower stars, which are Pycnopodia, and giant uh, giant spine stars, which are a species of Pisaster, those guys got hit really hard by sea star wasting disease, started in you know, 2013, 2014, really wiped those guys out. And so without those natural predators to keep them in check, the purple urchin just exploded. So quickly, though. I mean, like the time frame you're talking about is just kind of like often I think about climate change as slowly moving and like this is happening quick. Yeah, I mean this is this is pretty much instantaneous on a on an ecological scale, which is really spooky. When you flick one of the sea urchins, they they fall off pretty quickly. So it seems like talking to people who are who are really focused on just gathering them up. Yeah, I mean I think that urchin removal is really right now one of the only things that we can do. And obviously, you know, it's gonna be tough to restore you know, hundreds of miles of coastline, but I think where what we're hoping is that potentially you can save some spots where you'll have seed stock of kelp and, and abalone and kind of keep those hope spots alive so that when ocean conditions do get more favorable, that they can replenish the rest of the coast. So I think, you know, in terms of restoration options, what we're looking at right now is really urchin removal. So is that just optimism when things get better? Like, are things going to get better? That is 100% optimism. Yeah. Uh, if, I guess I should say, if things get better. But. I mean, I hope they do too. I just was, I, just, I thought maybe you knew that in a year or two. Things no, would. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the things is that climate change is so, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, water's, they're getting colder. So we had El Nino and the blob, which really gave rise to all this, but then the waters got cold again. So there was, there was some hope. Uh, now we're hearing about a new warm water mass that's forming off the West Coast again. So, you know, we're all worried, is, is this going to happen again or maybe even get worse? But we, we just we just don't know. And that's, you know, true about so many climate-related problems. So people read about El Nino. Maybe you can explain a little bit what it is. And also people know maybe what the blob is, but maybe know what this blob is. So what is El Nino? Yeah, so El Nino is, is basically just a... It's a regularly reoccurring atmospheric and oceanic phenomenon that usually leads to uh, to warmer oceans. Um, people, you know, on land probably think about rainier years, warmer, wetter winters. So that's El Nino. And then the thing that happened up here. Wait, so Mike, just before we get off El Nino, so 
Is El Nino related to climate change? Is it exacerbated because of climate change, or is it just happening on top of climate change? Basically, you know, El Ninos are, are stronger and more persistent due to climate change. And there's also, like, upwelling and all kinds of other things that happen, right? Right, exactly. And, and the thing that we're seeing with climate change is that all those processes that, you know, have been persistent for a, a really long time, and that's what all the, all the ecological regimes are, are very much based in those, those regularly reoccurring phenomena. Everything's kind of getting turned upside down with, with climate change. And then the blob is another, that was a, a, a warm water mass that moved over from the eastern Pacific and hit the west coast. Again, you know, they use the word anomalous, right? So it was, it was very much an anomaly that was, you know, most likely due to climate change. And what, what was it? Just a persistent warm water mass that, you know, a lot on the surface, but went down a, a, good, a good deal to a good depth and hit the west coast and waters were warm for a long time. A bull kelp here on the north coast is adapted to cold water. So between 50 and, you know, 52, 53, you get much above there and um, it's, it's really, really hard for kelp to grow. So we didn't, did we see any kelp? What were we, those stumps, it was like clear-cut forest down there. What was that? Yeah, so those were pteragophora. Um, that's a species of, of understory algae. So normally you'll have the big bull kelp. Those are, those are like the tall trees in the forest. And then you can picture pteragophora more as the kind of the shrubbery, the, the low-lying shrubs. Those were the stalks that we were seeing, but you could see, you know, normally pteragophora is going to have fronds on it, right? It's going to have those leaves, but all of that had been eaten by urchins, and we were even seeing urchins eating the stalks. So they're, they're starving too, um, and they're pretty much eating anything they can find. Okay, so the sea urchins are now starving. The sea urchins are now starting to starve because there's not anything to eat. Um, they've, you know, they're in such large numbers that they've eaten so much of the algae, both the bull kelp and the, the turf algae, the understory algae. Like I said, in some cases, they've even grazed the, the crustose algae down to bare rock. So what is kelp, Mike, and why, why is it important? So kelp is a brown algae. Um, so we got two main types here in California that people talk about. So there's macrocystis, which is giant kelp that grows down south and in central California. And then up here on the north coast, we have nereocystis, which is bull kelp. And kelp is important not just as a, as a food source to things like abalone and, unfortunately, urchins, but kelp's also important in terms of, I mean, it provides huge amount of three-dimensional structure. So you can see, you know, when I dive in, in Monterey, I see kelp rockfish sheltering in the kelp fronds all the time, um, good nursery habitat, a lot of three-dimensional structure. And it also does things, you know, like it attenuates wave energy. So, you know, when, wave, when storms come through, waves come through, the kelp forest can actually slow down the waves and, and reduce the energy as they come rolling into shore. So kelp does a lot for the coast. So we didn't see any kelp because it's all been eaten. I didn't realize that. So that, that's the main reason you don't see it is because the sea urchins are just, as you said, grazing on it. Exactly. Yeah. The sea urchins have just mowed it all down. What does that mean in terms of how less well off is the ocean here because of that? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's exactly what you said earlier, right? Is that, you know, it's urchins as far as the eye can see. Um, a healthy kelp forest looks really different. I mean, there's definitely a place for urchins in, in a healthy kelp forest. You'll see a few here and there and some cracks and crevices. But, you know, you should be seeing rocks that are covered in crustose algae. You should be seeing, you know, lush understory turf algae, um, you know, and these really tall soaring kelp forests that provide habitat to all kinds of things like fish. You know, a big thing up here, the biggest thing really is abalone. I mean, a huge part of the North Coast economy is dependent on abalone diving. And it's, you know, it's economically important. It's huge 
hugely culturally important up here. Um, and you know, so when you when you lose things like that, you, it's a it's a hit both ecologically but also economically too and culturally. I mean, it's even hard for me because I've never swam in a kelp forest to imagine what it looks like. Um, it just looks so denuded down there. There's just nothing, nothing other than these purple. They're, they're, they were the biggest sea urchins. Were those, were those the same species or are those different? No, so that's a different species. Those are red sea urchins. And actually there's a um, really good red sea urchin fishery up here. So uni, if you've ever eaten uni, sushi, um, that's what you're eating is, is going to be sea urchin and, and usually red sea urchin harvested from the north coast, um, at least if it's you know locally sourced in California. So the, the problem with that, though, is that the, the red urchin divers are hurting really hard, too, because the purple urchins are out competing the red urchins, and also the red urchins themselves are starving. So the uni is actually what you're eating is the roe. It's the gonads, what's inside the sea urchin. And so when they're starving, they don't make that, you know, a, a large amount of, of roe. So there's not, there's just not much, uh, it's not worth harvesting red sea urchins. <laughs> sea urchin gonads, I'm not sure I'm going to eat <laughs> uni with the same relish that I did before. <laughs> it's, it's, it's delicious if you don't think about it too hard. <laughs> Okay, so, and then what was the big white thing it looked like a flower? We saw a few of those. Yeah, those are sea anemones, and they're, uh, they're related to jellyfish. And they, they weren't that many of those either. No, no, there weren't, and th- those are things that, that hang out on the bottom, and they, uh, you know, they catch things as they, as they swim by or blow by. But, you know, I think the, the biggest message here is that what we were seeing out there is, is just a, a much less diverse ecosystem than it should be. I mean, the, the real hit that the ecosystem is taking out there is on biodiversity. So, you know, it's, it's, we talk about kelp and we talk about abalone, but we're also just losing the whole ecosystem. It's just terrifying. I mean, in front of our eyes, it's not, you know, decades, it's years. Yeah, it's, it's years. And like I said, I mean, pr- almost overnight, you know, on, a, on an ecological scale. But, you know, abalone are particularly sensitive. They'll starve and, you know, they'll get below that critical population threshold quickly. For urchins, they can reproduce when they're starving. And there's actually even been studies recently that show that, uh, that urchin, urchin parents, I guess, for lack of a better word, can turn on genes in their offspring under harsh conditions that make those offspring even more resilient to the harsh conditions. So they're, they're a very weedy species and they're persistent even in the face of tough times. Oh my God! If I mean, I have two kids. If we could turn on and off genes in our kids, like remotely, that they've got something on us. No wonder they're doing so well. They're doing pretty well. So, how often do you dive? I dive. uh, Usually, get in about a hundred to a hundred and fifty dives a year. I mean, a hundred and fifty is a lot. Yeah, it's not bad. Thanks so much for keeping me safe today. I mean, it was kind of depressing going down there, but. There's a lot going on under the water, and like if you're not familiar with diving, like it takes a while to get, took a while to get my bearing. So I appreciate you being patient. Absolutely, man. Before I get out of all my gear, I talk with Jack Lincolns to get his perspective on what it's like diving at this exact spot for decades. Going to church. (laughs) I can be out there. I don't have to worry about any other life things except myself and what's going on in the ocean environment. Just look around, and every time I'm out there, I find something I've never seen before. It's amazing. But I love it. When did you start diving, Jack? Actually, I started diving in high school... 1963, my senior year, I went to Laguna Beach after my senior year and lifeguarded there for a couple of years. And, and everybody used to dive for their dinner. 
And so we'd go out and get an abalone, get a, a potato, slice it into french fries, and put it all in the deep fryer together. And that's the way we ate. It was, it was beautiful. And then how long have you lived here? I moved, I retired in uh, 1997, so that's 23 years now. Tell us a little bit where we are. Right now we're in the south end of Sea Ranch at a beach called Pebble Beach. And it's one of the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife's abalone index sites. And it's also one of the reef check sites. And so we came here today to have a first-hand look for people so they could see what's going on out there in the ocean environment, hopefully to help them make decisions about what to do about it. I've never actually had an abalone. What, what does it taste like? It's, it's interesting. It's pretty flavorless unless you put something on it. It's, uh, the texture is a lot like calamari steak. I used to go out and try to get as many abalone as I could that were, you know, legal size and legal quantity, and then come home. Once I moved here, I decided I, I'm just going to, if I got my limit every time I went out, I'd only be able to go out three times a year and I'd be done. So I go out a lot just looking for trophy size abalone, which are over 10 inches and, and uh, longest point across the shell. So um, I kind of started focusing on that and finding, you know, this is just as much fun, if not more, than going out and just getting your meat and coming back in. I so guess, how often do you do that, Jack? When the season was open, which it, it has been closed since uh, the end of 2017, I'd go about 30 times a year. And I keep track of all my dives. And then that's satisfying enough. And it gave me the excuse that I needed to go out there in the water and be in that ocean environment and get that sense of what's going on with Mother Nature. What is going on? We've had a combination of environmental problems that have caused that. And it all ripples, as you know, through Mother Nature's chain. So the first thing that happened was the starfish wasting syndrome, and they are the main predator of sea urchins, uh, died. And then we had the warm water come in close to the shore and the bull kelp, which is the main food for abalone and for sea urchins, died because it can't survive and over about 62, 64 degrees. It gets affected really bad when it gets up over 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So the sea urchins multiplied to the point where they were, by some estimates, 60 times their normal densities. And you can imagine, and I've seen patches where you could do this, you could count in a square meter, you could count hundreds, 200 urchins in a square meter, so thick that you couldn't put your hand down any place without touching one or two. But the abalone that didn't move fast enough and got surrounded by urchins or couldn't move, uh, we saw today a lot of dead shells, and uh, that's the result of it. My guess is, uh, by some estimates, 90% of the abalone have died. I don't think it's that much. Sonoma County is the worst. Where we are right now is probably one of the uh, worst areas. My guess is more like 50% uh, or maybe even 75, but I, I don't think 90. You just got to look in the right places, and there are still some places deeper water where the abalone are plenty healthy. They're just uh, a lot fewer, far between at this point. So many people, Jack, you know, when they think about climate change, they think about bigger storms and flooding. They think about, you know, um, sea level rise. They think about wildfires 
This seems like a hidden crisis. I, th I think that's exactly right. Uh, most people look out in the ocean and see water, and there's water there. It looks all fine, but you have to stick your head under the water and look at what's going on with the environment. It's, it can be like a dead sea, and then I mean, it's going to not produce fish. It's not going to produce seafood at all. In my opinion, there's just too many people trying to use too few of resources. And then on top of that, you get the pollution and the runoff from the rivers and streams. And, you know, global warming is a, a factor when you get these warm water blobs that kill some species. And we've seen white sea bass that are typically in Southern California in the warm water up around Bodega Bay, which is unheard of. And we're seeing lobster in uh, Monterey, which is pretty rare as well. So species are shifting with the climate. Some of it's for the good, but most of it's for the bad because they die, especially abalone. They can't move. So for divers that are just starting out, what can people do in, in their daily lives? Are there things that you're thinking of to help turn the tide? And I, I'm a little frustrated by not being able to do anything. I, I don't know what you can do. I mean, there are a lot of organized divers that want to go out and smash up the urchins and see if the kelp will go back, and I think that's all good. But they're not going to make a dent in the overall picture. <clears throat> Hopefully they could try to clear a cove or two and see if the kelp would come back, and maybe that'll be seed stock to replenish the rest of the coast once Mother Nature changes direction and the urchins go away, which will happen. It's just a matter of how long the cycle is going to be. We've been through these cycles before. You just can't tell how long they're going to be. If we'd done the same dive 10 years ago, what would we have seen? You don't even have to go back 10 years. You can go back five years and you would see a night and day almost. When I was diving 2016, 2017, and before that, you'd see big sun stars, sea anemones, you'd see sea urchins, but not, not so many purple ones. They'd be the um, red ones, which are the commercially viable ones. And you'd see tons of abalone, big, fat abalone, algae and kelp all over every place. And then compared to today, it's just like night and day. And do you find it, I mean, to me, it just looked really depressing. It was like going into a clear-cut forest where there was nothing left. I mean, does it make you not want to dive? No, it makes me really frustrated and pissed off and wanting to do something about it. But at the same time, I don't know what to do. I mean, we can work on these urchin clearings and coves. And, you know, one of the problems with doing that has been that the scientists want to study it and figure out what the best way is, and they're concerned about it. And they should be. If you pull a string over here, it's going to affect something over there. So they don't like the idea of just going out and smashing urchins. But my, my philosophy on that is take a cove, pick a cove, maybe two coves, go out and smash the shit out of them, get rid of them, and see what happens. The worst case is they come back the same way they were before. And the best case is after a couple of times of smashing, they don't come back and the kelp starts to regrow and you have seed stock that's possible to reseed, you know, bigger areas of the coast than just a single cove. Because our bull kelp is uh, 
perennial annual, I mean. It regrows itself every year, and it regrows itself based on spores that are on the leaves of the kelp. The female-male spores mix, and they float in the ocean currents, and then they settle to the bottom. And if they settle on a place where they can uh, grow, then they form a hole fast and they grow. Uh, that's different than the giant kelp in Southern California that can regrow itself out of the holdfast. I don't know what else you can do other than try some experiments in a few coves like that. Josh Rousseau from the Waterman's Alliance has organized these, these dives where they go up and they call it bag and drag because they have to go out there and just scrape the urchins off. They put them in a game bag. They put the game bag on a kayak. The kayak takes the game bag into the uh, shore. They take them in the shore, they look at them, measure them, whatever, and put them in a bucket and they crush them up. They put them in a bigger bucket and they take them and they dump them on a road someplace for a road base. So, I mean, that's a way to do it, but it's really inefficient compared to if you could just go out there and, and use a hammer and crush everyone you saw. I think the kelp will grow back very quickly if the urchins are gone. But without the urchins being gone, it'll, it'll be a long time. They eat the kelp before it even gets a chance to sprout. Hopefully we can turn it around in a quick amount of time as well. Yeah, I, I would hope so too. I don't think it's going to be quick, but even if we can turn the corner, that would be great. A big thank you to Mike Escrow and Jack Lincolns for safely leading me into the depths of Northern California's coastal waters. I also want to thank Eric Sklar, Mark Gold, Paige Berube, and Felicia Von Stolk, who all came on today's dive and were super helpful. The pace of destructive change happening off California's coast is both hidden and alarming. I'd read about it and talked to many divers, but seeing it for myself gave me a whole new sense of urgency. It seems like we have the opportunity to take some targeted interventions that could help reduce the number of purple sea urchins and let the kelp forest rebuild. But as Jack said, nature's interconnectedness means that we never know what the impacts of pulling one strand will do somewhere else in the tree of life. But what we do know is that in just a few years, one of the richest places for ocean biodiversity on the planet has been turned into an urchin wasteland, and something needs to be done. In the next episode of Podship Earth, I go to the eastern Sierras with a crew of intrepid scientists in search of hidden rock glaciers. Never heard of rock glaciers? Neither had I, but they're super cool. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, sometimes you have to dive deep into issues before you can see the truth.